If you have your Bibles with you this morning, open them up to the book of Galatians. We are closing in on the end of that book. Um, today we will be checking off one more chapter. We are going to finish chapter 5 today, work our way into chapter 6. So open your Bibles up to the end of the book of Galatians. Uh, we'll begin to read our passage in uh, verse 25 of the fifth chapter. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of our God. So Paul has been speaking to us in a number of different ways for the past couple of weeks about the kind of people we ought to be. He first has told us many times and in numerous ways what has been true. He has told us that Christ has died for our sins, that if you trust and believe in him, you will be saved, and that in that salvation you need nothing else from the world. All you need is to trust that Christ has done everything that is required to make you righteous and holy before God, that you will be justified in the final days. God will declare you innocent and not guilty from all of your sins because Christ has paid the penalty for them. You are in Christ. Paul then turns his attention here in chapter 5 and into chapter 6 about how then we ought to live out our lives. Previously, he says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and then he turns to the, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. As we are to walk in the spirit, we are to cultivate the fruit of the spirit among us. And we talked last week about how that is distinct from works of the flesh. We would expect it to be works of the spirit, but instead it's fruit of the spirit. It's the kind of people that we ought to be. We ought to be people who are known by love, even as Pastor Doug read, not just but a couple of minutes ago, that we are known as Christ's disciples by how we love one another. So we are to build up these things in ourselves. Paul, in our passage this morning, then turns his attention to putting sort of, I don't want to put, say put flesh on it because that's going against the, the idea, so, but that's continu continually what I want to say uh, because it's a way we say it, but he, he instead is filling out the idea and practically applying what it means for us to be these kind of people. If you are the kind of person who is filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, what does that look like when we gather together? What does that look like as a corporate body? And that's what he is getting at this morning. Paul begins in 525 by noting this sort of conditional. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If, if you have been raised from the grave by Jesus Christ, whether figuratively as we have now, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and Christ has made us alive, this is the work of the Spirit, that you were nothing but a dead man. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You didn't have a heart for God. You were, you were cut off from him and completely at enmity with him. You wanted nothing to do with him and being cut off from the Lord of life, you were as good as dead. And yet the Spirit has come. And the Spirit has enlivened your heart to God. He has made you woken to God. And now you walk and you live by the Spirit. If the Spirit has done that, if you live by the Spirit, he says, then you ought to also walk by the Spirit. 
This is simply a transition verse, frankly. It's not that much different than what he says back up in verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit. He says, if you have been raised, if the Spirit has made you alive again, then you ought to walk by the Spirit. In verse 26, then, he gives us sort of the opposite side of that. It's a nice summary of what we just read about the fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. We are to be a specific kind of people. We are not to be conceited. We're not to think more of ourselves than we ought to. We are not to provoke one another. We're not to provoke one another into sin. This is, I'm reminded of the passage in Ephesians where we are, as fathers, not to provoke our children. We are to lead people. We're not to provoke one another into sin and anger one another to make these sort of sins of dissension and disunity that we find amongst the works of the flesh. We're certainly not to envy one another, knowing that God has given all good things in his time. So how then, given that summary, how then ought we live amongst one another? The first thing that we need to do is perfect the broken. We need to perfect the broken. Let's be clear here at the beginning of verse 6. This is for the church. So in six one, when he says, Brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We can take that anyone and think that it's anyone in the world. And, and there's a sense in which that's true. But because he says brothers, which is really supposed to be brothers and sisters, it meant, it's meant for everyone. So if, if that is really true, what he's talking about is those people specifically who are called brothers and sisters. If any one of you is caught in any transgression, let him be restored. So it's, it's for the church. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Other versions, like the King James and the Christian Standard Bible, use the word overtaken. It's hard to know what the actual context of this is, and it's probably a little bit of both. It means that, at the very least, whatever sin has been committed... It is known and is seen as sin by everyone, both by the person who has undertaken it and by the church at large. People know it. It is obvious. It is clear. That person has obviously committed the sin, but there is a sense in which that person has also repented from that sin. Given the context of what Paul is saying here, it's clear that they were overtaken by it, but that they regret it. They have sought in repentance to be reunited to the church, and the church knows about it. It is not hidden He says, for those people, if they are caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Now, that doesn't mean that what happens is the really spiritual people ought to seek that person out and restore him. That doesn't mean that the elders are meant to be the people who restore people back into fellowship. What did Paul just get done saying? If you have been raised from the dead by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Frankly, every one of us falls under that. Paul is just reminding you that you are all spiritual people. If you have been made alive in Christ, you are a Spirit-filled person. This isn't a special class of people. This is everyone who has the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit among us. They should be restored. So anyone of you who has caught brothers in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him. And that word restore is, is a beautiful word. And we're going to sit down and think about what it means to restore someone. This is a word that's used throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to describe the preparation of something for a particular use 
And it is specifically the providing of that something with the appropriate form and function. Okay? So what that means. Let me read to you a long passage from the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, the people have come back from exile to Babylon, and they are starting to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And people are having problems with this. The pagan people around have problems with this. And so there's a letter sent back to King Artaxerxes, and they say, hey, we've got problems here. This is the letter that they have sent back to Artaxerxes. They say, Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city, they are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls restored, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. We make known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls restored, then you will have no possession in the province beyond the river." It's clear that what they're, they're getting at is the, the walls. As Babylon came in to take the Jews out in exile, they destroyed the city. And part of the destruction of the city was ripping apart the wall. They threw stones everywhere. They did everything they could to destroy as much as they could. Now the Jews are coming back, and what are they doing? They're making the wall a wall again. The wall was partially there, probably. They didn't just completely remove it and pound it into dust. That takes too much energy. So there would have been a remnant of a wall there. And what are they doing? They're restoring it. They're making it whole again. They're perfecting it that it might do the duty that it was put there for. Mark 1.19. As Jesus goes on a little further, he sees James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. Same word, mending their nets. They were taking these nets that in order to catch, I don't know anything about fishing, but I'm pretty sure about this, that if you have a net that you're trying to catch fish with and it's got huge holes in it, you are not going to be terribly successful. So because they're better fishermen than me, they're sitting in their boats and they're repairing the holes in their nets. They're mending their nets. They're making them whole again so that they might do precisely the function that they were equipped to do. 1 Corinthians 1.10. I will read this in the KJV because the KJV says it well in this particular case. Now I beseech you, brethren, it doesn't even sound right coming out of my mouth. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Perfectly joined together. That you be unified, because that's what God has called you to be, so that you restore or you mend yourselves together. You, you make yourselves, you prepare yourselves to be right. God has often talked about he prepares people for judgment or he prepares people for mercy in Romans 9. It's not just the fixing of something, it's even the preparation or the making of something. So again, this word is used to describe the preparation of something for a use, providing that something with the appropriate form and function. And Paul says, when you find a brother who falls, or you find a sister who falls, you are to restore that person back to what they should be. So the goal for the church is to be the body of Jesus Christ. Our goal is to be unified together. And the sin obviously keeps the body of Jesus Christ from doing what it is meant to do. Like a 
wall that is broken down or a net that has a huge hole in it. It keeps us from acting and being what we have been called to be. And so therefore, Paul calls on people in the church to say, when someone sins and they have repentance, you are to bring them back and you are to make right what has gone wrong. You are to be as you were supposed to be. You are to perfect the broken. It doesn't mean that you are making them perfect, but it does mean that you are having the perfection of unity amongst the body of believers as the goal of what you do. When someone falls, we seek to restore them. We seek to restore them in gentleness, he says. A spirit of gentleness. There's no harshness here. We cannot be the kind of people who seek to beat people down in their sin because we want them to know how bad their sin was and how it's wrong to do it. I would, re- I would call your attention to how Jesus does this. The people whom Jesus is hardest with are those people whom Jesus has already written off. It is not those people whom Jesus is calling to himself. It is those people whom Jesus casts judgment down upon. So he heals a man on the Sabbath in Matthew 12. And the Jews, the authorities, specifically the Pharisees, want to kill him. Matthew 12, 15 picks up from there. He says, Jesus is aware of this, this murderous intent to kill him. And he withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. So he, he heals them. He gets in trouble for healing somebody, but he's still healing people. People are still coming with their troubles. They're still coming with their problems to him, and he is healing them. And it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. He he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. It is to those who are far away, to those who who are not near him, to those who are sinful and separated from God. That is who he will proclaim justice to, and he will not quench them. So, what is this picture actually doing for us? We can think of this in terms of nets or walls, but the one image that Christ allows in his word most often for his church is that of a body. That's actually why we call it membership, because you are all members of one body. It is that picture that drives so much of the New Testament theology about what we do here together. We are members of the same body. So let's think through what it means to restore with a spirit of gentleness through an image of the body. What happens if I fall and I break my ankle? What happens if the dog runs in front of me and I trip down the stairs or a kid does something and I fall and notice it's never my fault because I have perfect balance and coordination. I was sparing my dog or I was sparing my kids and I fall and I break my ankle. What happens to me? Well, there's two things that I don't do. The first thing is I don't say, man, My ankle doesn't work right. It never works right. It's probably going to hurt me again in the future. It's probably best if I just cut the thing off. I'll limp to the garage. I'll get a saw, and we'll be done with it, okay? And I'll take care of it. We don't don't do that. Yes, it probably will cause you pain in the future, and there's a good opportunity for you to break your ankle again in the future. But nevertheless, that is not something that occurs to us at the moment when we break our ankle. We don't think that what we need to do is chop it off and get rid of it because it's caused us pain. 
the only time when amputation happens and the only time when amputation is right is when that particular part of the body causes or has the ability to cause severe damage to the rest of the body. Something like gangrene, which is actually a biblical metaphor that's used for cutting people off from the church. So in 2 Timothy 2, 16-18, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. You are to avoid those people, he says, because they will infect you. But Paul has a different attitude toward people who have hurt the body but want to be restored. We don't cut them off. We don't cast them out, but we seek to restore them. The second thing that doesn't happen is we don't immediately fall, break our ankles, and then say something like, well, you know what, my ankle is just fine the way it is. This is, this is a broken world we live in, and these kinds of things are going to happen. And yeah, it's painful, but there's no reason to actually mend it. There's no reason to, to help it be better or more perfect than it was because we're all broken. It's going to break again. I might as well just let it flop around for a couple of months until I can put some weight on it. We don't do that either. The pain is there to make us aware of something we need to fix. We need to make right again. So when people sin, we don't just blow it off as something that happens. We don't just say, oh, it's okay, it's not a big deal. No, it's a big deal. It's broken and we need to mend it. We don't treat it like it's the equivalent of a bug bite. We don't blow off sin and make it seem like it's, there's nothing wrong here. There's something very wrong here. So many churches deaden their notions of sin so much that they do not know the pain that sin wreaks upon their congregations. And because they just, they treat it like it's a broken ankle that they just don't care about fixing. So what do we do? Well, the rest of the body supports the ankle. Our brains immediately flush our body with chemicals to not only warn us that something is wrong, but to help us get help. Your heart rate rises immediately so that you will have energy and the ability to get to help. You support and stabilize yourself with your hands. You stand up on your one good leg now to support all of your weight on the good leg so that you can with gentleness get your ankle to help and you call out to a physician who will heal you. That's what we do. That's what the church does as well. So when sin happens, we support and gently take the one who is broken to the good physician that they might be restored. That is the picture we are left with. We do not cut them off. We do not bark at them for how poorly they've acted or what they've done, but instead we treat them with gentleness, seeking a restoration of a body that we might be perfect in unity and in cohesion together. Paul warns us, though, lest you think that, that somehow you do not need this type of action on your behalf. You, you think that you're never going to need restoration. You're never going to need to have people who are there to bring you back. And he says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You will fall, friends. You will need this restoration. If you think that you can handle people harshly, it's because you've never understood what it means to be handled gently by Christ. You will fall, so don't be foolish. Don't fall into temptation because you do not see the importance of bearing and gently restoring people back to membership. Secondly, 
We should provide for burdens. We should provide for burdens. Paul says that in verse 2, we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are to carry them for one another. And you'll notice here that Paul leaves us as general as he possibly can. What burdens, Paul? What burdens are you talking about? And he doesn't list any. There's probably a very good reason for that. It's any and every burden that your friend, your neighbor, your brother, your sister in the church might have. If it's financial, then we provide financially for them. Acts 4, 32 through 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. A need would arise, and the church would provide. They would carry one another's burdens. They would provide not for the luxuries, right? They weren't driving around the first century equivalent of Ferraris, but they were eating the first century equivalent of bread. They were having the first century equivalent of shelter. They were having their needs met for them because others were self-sacrificially giving for it. They were bearing the burden of others. This could be spiritual as well. And he gave, in Ephesians 4, 11, he gave apostles, Jesus Christ left apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. He says, Christ has given you pastors, teachers, so that you might be equipped for the ministry, so that you can build up the body of Christ. You are to spiritually provide maturity for others who lack maturity. That is not my job. That is your job. My job is to equip you to do it. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. We also provide for physical needs. In Acts 6, the disciples were growing in numbers, but there are a certain group of widows who are being overlooked in their daily needs. They needed bread. So what happened? Well, They appointed people godly men filled with the Holy Spirit to go and provide that daily need. Even something as, as obscure maybe as doubt. James five nineteen through 20 says, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth, so you doubt in some way, you wander from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Jude 22 says it even easier than that. Have mercy on those who doubt. Bear with them. Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things. Bear one another's burdens. I was reminded this week as we studied Cain and Abel this past weekend in our community groups. The Lord talks to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Cain's offering to the Lord was rejected while Abel's was accepted. In verse 8 of Genesis 4, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord God said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, yes, you are. You are his watchman. You do watch over him and you provide for him. 
you are your brother and sister's keeper. When they have burdens to bear, you are to carry them. We are the body of Christ. Listen, Jesus bore in his own body our sins to make us unified to God. He took our burdens upon himself. And if we are the body of Christ, we can do no other. We carry the burdens of our brothers and sisters because that is what we've been called to do in Christ. Now let me, let me pause for a second because I'm pretty sure that some of you misheard what I just said. What some of you heard was that the church is to carry your burden. That is not what I said. What I said and what Paul said is you are to carry others' burdens. Now, it is very well good and true for you to expect that when you have burdens upon yourself, that you can come to the church and the church would carry those, but that is secondary, a vastly second secondary. You are commanded to carry the burden of others in the church. Paul could have easily said, make sure the church is upholding you, make sure that others carry your burden, but he did not do that. There are plenty of people in here who don't think that they need their burdens carried, and there are plenty of people who think that they are above carrying others' burdens. Listen, it is not out of humility. It is not out of humility that people refuse to carry others' burdens. They might open their mouths and they might say that. They might say, well, I, I'm so small, I'm so weak, I, I can't do these sorts of things, and maybe physically and financially you can't, but that doesn't mean that you are not called to bear their burdens in some way, shape, or form. It is not out of humility. It is out of conceit. Listen to what Paul says next. He says, if anyone thinks he is something, notice the four there. He's grounding. Why do you carry the burdens of others? The reason why is because if you think that you're something, when you are nothing, strong language, if you think that you're too good to carry the burdens for someone, you are nothing, friend. You're nothing. You've deceived yourself. We talked about last week how Jesus models his own life, the Gentiles' Lord, lordship over their people. They want everyone to know how big and mighty and strong they are. And Jesus says, you cannot do that. That is not your way. You will show how mighty you are by how well you serve. You'll show how great you are by how well you serve. He demonstrates this by washing the disciples' feet. The lowest of the low wash people's feet. And Jesus says, I'm Lord over all things. You call me Lord and teacher, and that's right, I am. And so you also are to go out and you are to wash others' feet. You are to care for them. In Luke 14, he told this parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the place of honor. Let someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will both, will, will, who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go sit at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of one who sits at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, humble yourselves and serve one another, for you will be exalted in doing that. And if you think that you're too good for it, friend, you are nothing. And in embarrassment and in shame and the day of judgment, you will be moved down. And everyone will see forever and ever who you thought you were and who you actually were. Perfect the broken, provide for burdens, and thirdly, prove every boast. Briefly, let's say very quickly, there isn't 
contradiction here. So earlier Paul said you are to bear the burdens for others. And now he says you are to bear your own load. Two different loads, two different pictures. So there's no contradiction here. The load that's being borne here is one of judgment. God will judge you on the works that you have done. Not to see whether or not you are fit for the kingdom of God, but to see your placement in the kingdom of God. God will judge the works that you have done. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. According to the grace God has given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. It seems like if you were building a building, and you're, one guy's using gold, precious stone, silver, and the other guy's using wood, hay, and straw, it would be obvious. But Paul says it's not obvious. It's not, because you don't see it looking at it. The only time you actually get to see it is when fire is put to it, and you get to see which one's consumed. The point that Paul is making is, you are going to go to heaven, and you are going to give an account for the work that you have done. You do not get to say, well, I was around a good work here, or I was around a good work there. The work that you get credit for in heaven, the work that you have reason to boast about in heaven, which boast is a very bad word for this, the work that you get to say that you did in heaven must be your own. You don't get to claim that you were around that work when it was being done. Okay? So, you don't get to say, listen, my church was a doctrinally good church. They had very good doctrinal teaching. Or, or my church had a lot of ministry for kids. And so Matthew 18, not allowing or preventing children to come to him, that was a good thing my church did. My church honestly desired evangelism to hold up the word of God and that my church wanted to do missions and we gave a bunch of money to missions. We went on mission trips. We did missions. My church was a praying church. You can say all that stuff until you are blue in the face and God will say, but, but what did you do? Did you do any of that evangelism? Did you do any of the praying? Did you do any of the teaching? Did you do any of the things that you disclaimed? Were you doing it or were you just present while other people were doing it and you're trying to get credit for it? You don't get credit for that. Unless you serve, you get no reward. You're building with materials that look, look like they're solid, that look like they're good, that look like they will stand through fire. But when God torches them, everyone will see that it was simply a facade. You did nothing. Don't be found like that in the day of God's judgment. Build with real materials. Build with your own costly materials. Engage in service to the church so that your boast may be proved in the last day. Now as we come to a close and we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, I have just a couple of more things to mention as further implications about this particular passage. First, I want to press upon you the importance of church membership. I do not in any way, shape, or form, see how 6 1 
could ever be maintained outside of church membership. I do not know what people are being restored to. It is not the person themselves who is being restored. It is everyone who is being restored. Okay? They are the ones who are broken, yes, and we are restoring them in the Lord. That's true, but you're also restoring the entire body of Christ. You are making it whole again. The only way you can do that is by clearly defining what the body is, is by clearly having a picture of what the wall is or what the net is, what the body is. I don't understand how we could restore people to something that we can't define ourselves. This is why we have church membership, so that we can define what the church is. So that when you fall out from fellowship with the church, we can restore you back to fellowship in the church. What Paul is talking about here is not simply that you might be forgiven in Christ. How do we provide that? How do we make somebody right with God again? How can we restore them to God? Well, there's a sense in which we can preach the gospel to them. Very true, but that's not our work. We're not actually restoring them. We're telling them how to be restored. The way in which we restore them is by putting them back into fellowship with the church. Without knowing what church membership is, without knowing who is considered in and who is considered out, there is no way to actually restore people to the church. Secondly, I want to press upon you not just the importance of church membership, but meaningful church membership. There is no way that you can bear the burdens of anyone in this church by showing up on Sunday mornings and Sunday mornings alone especially if you only come to worship service. There's just no way you can bear those burdens. And to make it more, I don't know, nice for you, there's no way that we can bear your burdens either. We, we cannot possibly know all of the trials and the difficulties that you are going through when you only come on Sunday mornings. This is why we have prayer services. This is why we have community groups so that we can be the kind of people who bear one another's burdens, so that you can fulfill what Christ is calling you here to bearing the burdens of others, so that when we sit down and we study scripture together, when we hear about prayer requests, when we talk and we share life together, whatever that looks like, you can be there to help people to share their burdens and to bear them. If you are not involved in things like that, I have no idea how you expect to do this. Now, you might say that you don't expect to do this, but realize where that puts you. That puts you in direct contradiction to the word of God. And if you have another way in which you can do this, please come and see me. I would love to hear what it is. But I don't see how it's possible to do that without meaningful church membership, without vastly improving your simply coming and being a participant in the things that Crossway does. And many of you, almost all of you, do that excellently. And I don't mean to step on any toes there. But if you don't, let me encourage you, get involved in those things so that you can learn what it means to bear one another's burdens so that you can fulfill the very law of Christ. Not just any old law, not just any good thing, but the law, the very thing that Christ has called you to be. You will be known as my disciples because of how you love one another. You can't do that from a distance. And you certainly don't do that simply by showing up for a group of people that you don't see outside of Sunday morning worship. So I want to press upon you not just church membership, but meaningful church membership. And some people might think, I, I don't know if that's really up for me. I'm busy. I've got a lot of time. I don't know how I'm going to serve in these ways. I don't know how I can make all of this happen. So I would just ask you this. Do you think that by giving yourself over to Christ in the church, 
If this is indeed a body of believers devoted to Jesus Christ as members, we should all hopefully believe that that is true. If that is the case, do you honestly think that Christ would withhold from you any good thing if you gave yourself up to that? Luke chapter 19. Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so he said, the beginning of this isn't terribly important, but what we're about to hear is, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business till I come. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants whom he had given the money to to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. He said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here, is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you do not sow. Christ has given you the desire, hopefully, to follow the leading of the Spirit, to accomplish the word that he has written down here. He has given it over to you to multiply, to encourage, to build up the ministries of this church by serving them, by bearing one another's burdens, by restoring people who have fallen away. What part of time, money, humility, love, kindness of labor could you give to Christ that he would not repay you for tenfold? Or do we think that Christ is one who reaps where he does not sow, or deposits, or takes what he has not deposited. Christ is not going to steal from you, brothers and sisters. He will not steal from you. Give yourself over to the things that he is calling you to, and he will bless you so richly and so abundantly that you will not even understand where it comes from. Anything that you give up in order to be present with God's people so that they can bear your burdens and you can fulfill the law of Christ, I guarantee you, you will find worth it in the end. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So as you go out this week, as you go through your days and your weeks, I, I pray that this one question will be on your mind and you'll be bothered by it. Am I doing what I can to serve my brothers and sisters those bought with the precious blood of Christ, am I doing what I can to serve my brothers and sisters here at Crossway? Let that question be on your hearts as we go and pray. Father God, I pray that you enliven our hearts to love your people because we love you because you have loved us. As Christ has shown his love for us, we see the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord and we see the glory of those whom he has called to himself. So Father, let us bend ourselves and press ourselves to love one another as you have called us to love one another. That includes me as well as anybody else, Father. I with Paul would say that I have not arrived yet and that there is much need for all of us to love one another better. So we pray, Father, that you will help mend us in that, that you will help continually mature us, that we might not be children tossed to and fro by the wind, but that we can be stable and mature as a body, glorifying Jesus Christ with who we are and what we do.
We ask for this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.